Welcome to JW Community Podcast, where my mum is basically just blabbering on about nonsense. Thank you, fam. Hello and welcome to JW Community Podcast. Now, this is a bit of an unusual podcast because we've recorded half of it already and we're recording the other half, so the sound quality might jump between the two halves. Um, but basically, we've got I've got Lara with me. Hello, Lara. Hi, Louise. How are you? I am very well, thank you. It feels like not two minutes ago that we spoke. True. <laughs> True. We recently had a podcast with an Irishman and funny enough, We've got an Irish lady today, or should I say Italian? Yes, Her we name can't, is get en- can't get enough of the Irish, can we? So would you like to introduce <laughs> our half of our podcast guest, please? Hi, Riker, and welcome. Hello, good morning and ciao, buongiorno. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Your accent is so unusual. I can't wait for people to hear more of it. And you've got a very interesting story, very, very different story to the other podcast that we recorded. And this is part two, as Louise said, there was a podcast we recorded last year on New Year's Eve that was done with Kale and Jonas, or Jonas in Australian, and their podcast was called We Are Fish. So this is to, I guess, honour the female perspective of being LGBTIQ. And what we're challenging people to do as a reminder is to look past the bias and past the conscious um, decisions that they made when they were Jehovah's Witnesses to be uh, bigoted. And this podcast is actually for LGBTIQ people, and you're the fourth, so we're really happy to have you. And we want them to hear from you. So I would love for you to tell people about yourself. Oh, all right. Well, what you can hear from my accent is a hybrid of everything. Um, I grew up, I was born and grew up in Italy, and then I moved to Ireland when I was 22, 23. And uh, I grew up as a normal person, as a Catholic. And um, I came out to my mother when I was 16. She wasn't happy at all with that. She made me black and blue. So you just go back in your box, as they say, and you try to forget about it. But then my mum's turbulent situation, even when, I, when she kicked me out when I was 18, I still kind of, she had a very, she was much dominant in my life. And um, when she got sick, she was only in her, four, she was only 46 when she got sick. And that's when the witnesses got me. That's when uh, they promised you the family that you never had, mm. that I never had, because my family was a disaster and uh, never really felt love or things like that. So uh, that's how I felt, as you say here, uh, hook, line and sinker mm-hmm. and everything. So I became a witness when I was only in my 20, because my mother died when I was 20. And uh, you don't think about it. You just don't even go there about your sexuality. You're just thinking that everything will be all right. You know, sounds incredible, but you just put it in the shelf or the corner of your brain and you try not to go there. And then uh, years later, I met a... a a, a nice guy, Max, he was, he was a nice chap, he was young, but he was very nice. And I thought maybe he could, uh, he, you know, maybe it could be the family that I really never had. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I married him and it didn't work out. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> we all had our own issues. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he has his own issues uh, mentally as well. 
and he was um, he was a Jehovah's Witness as well since at the age of six, and he was that's why my accent is strange even more. He was German, but he grew up in Ireland. He moved when he was only six. His family moved over here to serve when the need was greater. That was it. We were together for ten years, and I just um, the last few years he was in love with somebody else as well. He suffered from depression. My life was just getting more and more miserable. I felt I was drowning. He suffered from depression. He was actually suicidal, believe it or not. Surprise, mm. surprise. That's happened to many witnesses as well. Mm. So I remember I found a therapist for him and he flatly refused to take it, to accept the offer of going to see a therapist. So I decided, you know what, I have this number, so I'll take it. And I'll, I'll run and I made an appointment with a the therapist start going and she started making me thinking about things and I remember four years later after on my 10th nearly my 10th year anniversary I just said to Max Max I'm sorry this is not working out surprise surprise I'm gay Mm -hmm. and he said to me well I know you were gay I wrote a poem about you two years ago about being a dyke and yeah and so I just I left him I left the witnesses and tried to start again from fresh and accept who I was that was it. That's a hell of a story. And I know that there's a lot of detail missed out from that as well. There's a lot more that you've had to suffer and put up with. Um, yeah. Riker, when he when he said to you he knew and that he'd written a poem, was that in a kind of a supportive way? Like I've always known and it was amiable or was it the sort of standard witness judgmental you know, I don't really know exactly no. because, um, well, he was very bitter about it. He was his pride was gone to the yes. to the dump, and uh, you know I can understand him. Yeah. The poor chap, he was actually a good-looking chap, six mm-hmm. foot five. You know, he could have anybody who wanted to. I was just not interested in it, and uh, he, I know he did wrote that poem because uh, a friend that we had in common say like, oh, he actually read the poem in a poetry group. So, wow, I just didn't know it was about you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he was bitter. He was bitter mm-hmm. about it. And yet I remember about a year, and a, a year and a half later, after we separated, one time he came to me with an article on a magazine. And that's his bugging me because I really would like to know what he was thinking. Mm-hmm. And that article was an interview of a... Um, of, on an Irish newspaper was uh, was an interview with a woman that uh, actually grew up as a witness and uh, she came out as a lesbian and I just remember he just gave it to me so like you might want to read that so I don't know if it was as a support or as a yeah you know I, I don't know because with Max you never knew where you stand up because it could be the most kind person one moment and the next moment he come out with some really atrocious and some mm. really kind of like like oh my god did you just say that yeah he must have been conflicted it sounds like it was supportive because you wouldn't give somebody an article like that if you were terrified that you didn't want them to acknowledge something about themselves but yeah he as you say he did have his own huge issues to deal with didn't he that Max, he was very, very conflicted. Yeah. As I say, he was, uh, he suffered from um, depression since he was a teenager. He never got help. Mm. The only help he had when he was a teenager, he used to go cycling. He cycled all over Ireland. And uh, But his family, his, his mother 
was a pioneer and his father was an elder. All he got told was by his father said, don't trust anybody. Mm. And uh, by his mother, just pray more, do more, go out more in the ministry. Mm. All he got was that. And, um, you know, then he married me. And I remember I was... <clears throat> I was a little bit of a devil in the sense mm-hmm. that um, I didn't like the congregation. I hate the congregation. And I was all this morning complaining about it. <laughs> and and I remember saying, like, I know, I know, I know, but you do this for Jehovah. And I'm there, like, how many times you can do this for Jehovah? They are just morons. What can you do? But, you know, Max had his own doubts. He just wasn't willing to pay the price yeah. for that. He didn't want to lose what he had. Mm. And I know at the end he lost it because he committed suicide three years ago. Mm. But um, And that was a terrible thing for you to deal with because I know that you loved him as a person and that you felt a huge amount of empathy for him despite everything that you've been through personally. Well, you've always had something to give other people. So I remember the trauma when that happened was really horrific for you. It was, and funny enough, it didn't really hit me either. It is, I'm still in a limbo as such that the way he done it, he hasn't been declared dead yet, mm-hmm. but he's gone. Okay, just making sure. He, he decided to jump from a very uh, touristic spot, and his body there, we went in the water, and it, the bodies there, they're not really found very often. Mm-hmm. So I'm still in a limbo. He's still not declared dead after three years. I'm still waiting legally, and I'm still his married legally. Uh, I'm still his wife. Yeah, that's screw me up my life even more sorry Max but um, he it didn't really hit me that he died until last year last year something happened in my life I was heartbroken and mm-hmm. really bang it hit me and I was just thinking it's it's really gone yeah that was tough what was your life like as a witness then what did you completely suppress the fact that you were gay or were you was there a conscious conflict well, yes and no, in the sense that um, I, you, know, you, you go to the cinema, you watch films, and everybody's ranting and raving about that hot actor and this and that. And all I was thinking was the actress. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> and all I was just, all I was thinking is like, oh, she's much more nice, and I really, really like her. <laughs> and I remember, I remember a few. Um, um, one time, we were just married about uh, a couple of years or three years, and I found some interesting photos on Matt's phone, okay? Yeah. And they, were, they weren't um, new, total nude, mm. but they were risky pictures of uh, nice women mm. actresses and things like that. And I just remember saying to Max, really? Really? And I wasn't mad as such, but I said, like, you always told me you don't like Britney Spears, you're rotten liars. Look at that, she's there. You were mad at his choice of women, not that he, <laughs> not that he had other women on his phone. You were like, Max, this woman's not good enough to fancy. I could show you some better ones. <laughs> uh, don't take me wrong, Britney Spears was, uh, was nice. <laughs> yeah. Is it, did it? Yeah. That must have contributed, though, that kind of duality in your head. Did that contribute yeah. to conflict inside you, maybe dissonance? Or did you just were you just able to completely suppress it? No, it was it was a it was a nightmare. And uh, how can I <clears throat> how can I say things uh, in a nice way? But uh, you know, as a married person, you have to render the marriage due. 
Mm. And I did that, but it was agony for me every mm. single time. I, mm. I just, it, it was, I had to force myself to, and uh, I was never able to enjoy it. Mm. And uh, it was just, uh, I always try to find excuse to get out of it. I've been like that. <laughs> I'm not gay. <laughs> Have I just overshared on the podcast? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I totally understand that. You know what I was thinking, Riker? You know when we were at the protest together and there was Craig, who was quite obviously gay, with his big, big gay poster stood outside the Excel arena? I love Craig. I know. I was thinking how many people will be walking into that convention arena who are gay but don't acknowledge it to themselves or don't acknowledge it to anyone else and walk past and see that there is an alternative life possible where you can be happy and be yourself. I reckon there's loads, don't you? I said there is a huge amount of people like that. There is a huge. I was just looking at some of them, and some for the train eye is just so plainly, you know, it's like they, those are questioning themselves. Those mm-hmm. are something that they hide in something. The thing is that every every magazine, every talk, there is some homosexual rant, mm. homophobic rant. Yeah. And so you're just thinking like that's it, that is not you cannot even just just to remember some of the watchtowers or some some of the comments they were making, they were so homophobic. And you just to accept it. Because, yeah. you know, we have to obey God before uh, anybody else. Uh, but I'm just trying to think what I was thinking when I was in and I even comment some of the magazines because you have tried to hide who you are. So you you have mm. to be extra holy and you have to make comments. And I regret that. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's, they are bombarded. And I just, to, to walk into the venue and see, like, Craig <laughs> happily there, mm-hmm. I think, you know what? I hope they're going to think and I hope they're going to do researches as well. Mm. And I hope they're going to be able to be their own selves. Yeah, I thought that. I re- I thought it. I mean, he made a really powerful statement, didn't he? In, in a quite yeah. a, a comic way, but still, he he represented something to people. I suppose you sat in the meetings reading all those homophobic rants in the magazines would be like me, um, if they had took against people with blue eyes, and every magazine was saying, you know, people with blue eyes are an abomination to Jehovah, and I've got to sit there and read that and think, but I don't, I didn't choose it i don't know how to change it and so yeah. you've, you've just got to swallow it and then and then as you say you maybe counter it by answering up and going yes people with blue eyes are an abominate i agree even though it's about you that must be so <laughs> well i never was so strongly i was always minding watering down what the message was yes. but i did comment yeah but uh you just say like you're always hoping something is going to change. You're going to change yourself. You're going to, mm. you know, something going to change in your head and you're going to be able to enjoy life as such. But it doesn't. No. And so, obviously, you left the witnesses in, in um, under a lot of difficulty. Was it a relief then to be able to be yourself or is it still a difficult journey? 
Um, that was interesting because I remember when I told Max that's it, the marriage is finished and I'm leaving the witnesses and I say why so I'm like because I'm gay. He immediately contacted with the the elders, okay? Now hmm. the thing was that the elders they knew we had marriages problem mm-hmm. but they didn't do anything. But as soon as they heard the word gay, yes. they came over the very next day to have a chat with me. Oh. Yeah. And I remember it was two elders. Actually, I liked them both, funny mm. enough. They choose two that I like it. Yeah. And I remember they were trying to convince me and uh, to kind of stay. And I remember I asked them, not that I had an intention to stay, but I just wanted because I made my mind. And once I make my mind, people know that that's it, it's done. But I remember asking them, you know what, if I stay, are you going to check who I'm hugging? Because I'm a hugger person. I like to hug people. Yeah. So am I allowed to hug sisters? <sighs> and they looked at each other and they said, like, well, not really. So they said, hold on a second. So technically, I shouldn't be hugging brothers. And mm-hmm. now I'm not allowed to Thanks. hug sisters. So I'm a leper. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and uh, I haven't is... seen that in the elders' handbook. I haven't seen a, a kibosh on doing that in the in their shepherd, the flock of God. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, they're thinking that if I hug them, I'll be, oh, I was so aroused that I have tried to hug them, you know? <laughs> so so I just looked at them and so said, like, hey, you know what, um, no, it's not going to happen. And just say like, fine, then we have to meet up for a judicial committee. And I said, like, no, I save you the job. You'll have, I'll give Max my letter of resignation, uh, my letter to the association on Thursday, mm-hmm. so you'll have it. But that was it. Wow. Yeah. And then shunned? Shunned, of course. That's happened overnight, but I knew when it was going to happen. I sent a text message to all the witnesses that I knew that I say, like, I told them why. And a few of them reply, and that was it. Then that was the last time I ever heard from them. And, um, but Max was, I was, I would say, like, was supportive. Mm. Not really, because he went out and outed me to all my neighbors. Um, yeah. And all my neighbours are kind of um, kind of elderly, oh, but I think God. he was shocked because he had this mental attitude of the witnesses that everybody mm. will be uh, uh, horrified about it. Yeah. And all my neighbours say like, well, as long as she's happy, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, so my neighbours were very supportive, I have to say. I have a very good uh, good amount of neighbours near me that they were mm. really, really nice. And as I say, you do feel isolated because you lost everybody you had. Yeah. And uh, overnight, people don't really realize what does it mean that we don't really have witnesses that they are not uh, friends or acquaintances that are known witnesses mm-hmm. because we've been told that we can't have them because they're going to try to change us. Mm-hmm. So once you lose all the friends that were witnesses, you're left with very, very little. Yeah. So overnight, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So... My neighbors were kind of say, come over for tea or come over for a coffee and then slowly start to rebuild uh, your life. But, um, you know, it scars you. Rika, can I go back to when you're in Italy? Sorry to take you way back to that. But because you started saying that your mum being a Catholic would not accept that you were gay. And was that when you were back in Ireland as a teenager, sorry, in Italy as a teenager? Yeah, well, my mother grew up as a Catholic, but she was an atheist, okay? So an she atheist. was a very, yes, but she was very weird because um, she always say, like, you're born Catholic, you're going to die, die Catholic, even if you don't believe in God. Mm. 
yeah, and that was it. Uh, yeah, I was in Italy, and I was I was sixteen when I came out to her, and I said, "Listen, I I don't I fancy women, I fancy girl, I I, I like this girl at school." And uh, I remember she, my mother, could be violent, mm-hmm. and uh, she didn't take it very nicely. And the reason why I'm asking that is because I'm really interested because obviously. Um, in Italy, Roman Catholicism was so popular, and back then it was just really worldwide. You weren't allowed to be gay, and now things are so different. And I'm interested in knowing how it feels now in Ireland after the Me Too, and after Sinead O'Connor, and after the Royal Commission. And given that the Pope has just literally visited your island. How is it now in Ireland as a gay woman? Is it completely different to when you came out to your mum in Italy? I think so. Um, it is. It is. You see, I don't see any any much difference because I, I'm not really telling everybody I'm gay because it's not the first thing I'm producing myself. I say, hello, I'm right and I'm gay. I, <laughs> I don't do that, you know. Uh, but if people ask me, do you have a, you know, do you have a family? Do you have kids? Then I might. Mm-hmm. mentioned that I am gay. Uh, but people don't really buy, you know, they don't really look bad at you if you, you know, if you mention that you're gay or whatever. It's just, I, there is two different type of gay in Ireland, I think, in my opinion. One is the one that they are paranoid and they still think nowadays that everybody is against them. Mm-hmm. And the other type is like me, so like actually people are absolutely fine. Everybody that they know me, they know that I'm gay. They have no problem whatsoever. They are supportive. And, you know, the vast majority of people say like, as long as you're happy, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. And I just, I just want to pick up on that again because Louise just explained before, we don't identify someone as if they have blue eyes or not blue eyes. And I was listening to that and I'm thinking, oh, should I tell you I've got blue eyes? This will you discriminate. <laughs> but, you know, if let's just say our neighbours, right, we've got two neighbours here, two guys, and we refer to them as, you know, the gay guys next door. Yeah. We don't refer to them as the guys with blue eyes next door. And, you know, I've got to challenge myself on that. I really do. Why do I describe them that way? And it's just like you said. You said you don't just describe yourself, hi, I'm Riker and I'm gay. You don't do that. And why do we do that? We really have to challenge ourselves. Why do we instantly have to label people? Because I wouldn't say this is Louise and she's, she's heterosexual. <laughs> hi, my name's Louise and yeah. I'm heterosexual. <laughs> yeah, no, but no. We, do, we do, you know, have that, that dichotomy that we have to stop doing. Yeah. So I'm so glad that you just said that so that we can – think about it a little how do we describe people how do we think about them they're a person they have eyes or not as the case may be i am going to tell you how i describe you Riker, though so you know kevin mcfree did a lego video protest and i said please please put Riker in because she got an amazing photograph with the police and i said have you got a short Irish Italian Lego lady. <laughs> so I I do describe you, but not as gay. <laughs> and yeah. as it happened, he did have one, and you're in there. Brilliant! Did he have to sew the legs off? <laughs> I don't know, 
but maybe yeah. that maybe describing you as a short Louise, now she's not short <laughs> vertically challenged oh okay that's just... right yeah. <laughs> but she... well, i'm five foot nothing so oh. um, yeah i feel like vertically challenged most of the time yeah, yeah. you can't understand i was the tallest girl on the netball team and i'm not six foot i'm nowhere near it <laughs> but that's okay because you don't have to describe people in terms of their yeah. sexual orientation no. or the description just just say Rika. Them as a person. Oh, but certainly, Rika, I'm also interested in hearing a little bit more about how you um, developed your relationship with Max and whether you told him that you had um, doubts about your sexuality or whether you revealed to him that you were gay. Because if I think about it from his perspective, I could understand that he would be depressed and I could understand – I mean, you've told me before that he was – like that anyway but I could understand that he would feel um personal confrontation to his manhood that he was perhaps disappointing his wife or wasn't attractive to his wife so I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about your relationship from that perspective well, I met Max um when he was still very young I was seven years older than him and I said, you know what try to go for a toy boy to see if everything <laughs> that might help um I met him to a convention in Dublin, and then we met again the following year. Then we started going out, and we married very quickly because, you know, he was young, and um, you know the reasons why most of the marriages happens. He wanted to have sex. I just wanted to have somebody look after me because I wasn't interested in sex. So um, so we married very quickly, and um, I tried to make him happy. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I wasn't perfect. We had our own rows and everything. Um, but as, as Louis say, I was never in love with Max, but I loved him dearly because he was a nice person. Mm. Although we hurt each other very much and he did something that I wish he never done it. But, you know, it was, it was a good person. Um, when I told him that I was gay, he knew. He, I didn't tell him I might. I think I might be gay. I was very clear on that. Say, Max, I am gay. Mm-hmm. And Max said, like, I know you're gay. It was. I he knew exactly it was gay. And he was. After he died, I was able to reconnect with his ex-girlfriend, the one that came after me, the one that was in a marriage before. She was a witness as well, a complicated right. story. But we were talking about Max, and because I'm not bitter at all, um, mm. no. and she suffered loss as well. Uh, and we were talking, and uh, she told me that Max was, as you say, he was very, very irritated at the fact that I was gay. I didn't fancy him as, as a, you know, sexually. Mm. He felt his, his um, masculinity was taken away, but at the same time, no, there was nothing really I could do about it. No. No. So it was an awkward position you were put in. You were both really put in that position because, mm-hmm. as you said, he he's, you know, a young man wanting to have sex and you're trying to do what you're told you should do. So, yeah, I do understand from that perspective. I also understand because my father married a bisexual woman and I think about it from her perspective I've never asked her and she's never told I know there must have been such conflict for him and conflict for her and Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's a similar story um I'm I'm also interested in knowing you described before you, you described him as your best friend actually to me in the past and although like you said you hurt each other you were very close in your friendship 
But um, you mentioned before that he had another woman come into his life who was a Jehovah's Witness and I think currently is a Jehovah's Witness. And they were having an affair, I think I remember. Even changed the name of her on the phone. So, uh, but, you know, you know, and I remember telling him there's something going on between you and her. I said, no, 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 of course not, no, 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 no. Uh, but it's kind of strange that they always have to go out in the ministry together. <laughs> and all I remember I said to him, just be careful. And uh, don't take me wrong, my pride was hurt as well. But as I say, there is not much you can do about it. And I remember then one day he called me and I said, I have to talk to you. And I said, like, what happened? And he said like, to me, well, you know, her husband find um, all our text messages on the phone because he got the, the itemized bills and there was loads, hundreds of text messages. And I remember looking at him and saying, Max, do you really have to be so stupid? I told you to be careful. Oh. And I told you that I knew. Uh, and you told me that it was in my imagination, but it wasn't. And I said, just be careful. And learn the lesson. And that's it, because it was a ministerial servant. And you say, you can get in trouble for that. Anyway, he didn't learn the lessons. He, they didn't learn the lesson. A few months later, they were caught by her husband because they went walkie-walkies up to the mountains for hours. And I know he was going up the mountains walking. The other was just clearing his head. Mm. But he was going with her, you know, just going for like six, eight hours away. And, uh, and I remember then he, he rang me, came home and explained, and I went ballistic. I went ballistic for the simple reason that he lied to me, and uh, he didn't have the courage to me what's going on when I was asking him if it was something mm. going on between he, him and her. And I said, and it was ballistic because like, he caught you before. How can you be so stupid to be caught again? So, and that was uh, the slow descent to hell. That was because, um, I remember I wanted to know to know to know things because you know what when you are they always denied they had sex physical sex was only they they only fell in love mm. they all emotional attachment okay mm. so I remember it was um, you try because as a witness unless there is infidelity you, you know there is adultery you can't separate you can't divorce. Mm. But I wanted to know, and he plainly refused. And, of course, I wasn't talking to her because I was mad at that time. But I remember one day we were trying to make things work again slowly. And I remember I asked him, how did you hold her hand? And I said, look at me. He's like, what do you mean? So, no, what I mean is, how did you hold her hand? And with the finger crossed, interlined between each other, so what? And it's just say like, yeah. And I say like, hold oh, on a second, that is much more than walkie walkies now. <laughs> so I remember I said like, that's it. I pick up the phone and I rang uh, a friend that we had in common, the best friend of her, and I say like, today, tonight, eight o'clock, your house, her with with the her, she's gonna be there. And Max is going to be there and I'm going to get two elders because I wanted to know what was going on because I hate lies mm. and I hate being told one thing and be another thing. So I remember, she remember she said to me, like, you're not going to kill her. So I'm like, no, I don't kill anybody. I just <laughs> wanted to know the truth. So I ran two elders and one wasn't available because it was evening time. He wanted to be home. But the other one said, like, I better come in case I said there's going to be some bloodbath. And I remember sitting down there and, uh, and I said, like, I wanted to know what was going on, when was going on, how long is going on, what went on. And I think the hardest part for me was when I asked the question to him and no, to her first and I say, do you love him? And she say, yes. Mm -hmm. And I just look at Max and I say, like, do you love her? And he say, yes. 
Mm-hmm. And I just say like, well, you have to decide what you want to do. And they just they just wanted to put Jehovah's first. And again, they always denied they had sex. So again, it was uh, still trapped in it. Jeez. And I remember we tried to make things work again because for the congregation, you have to keep a happy face. Yeah. I wanted to move away from the congregation. I was told in plain no, because then the, 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 the people will start to talk. Oh, God. Yeah. And uh, I was mad. I was mad as hell. Mm-hmm. I was really mad. But at the same time, how can you be mad when somebody fell in love with another person yeah. because I knew I was living a lie. Mm. So, yeah. The and, whole um, situation yeah. is so damaged when you have all these other people interfering in your life, isn't yeah. it? Elders yeah. and congregation and, and, and then the expectations that you have to be heterosexual or nothing. Absolutely. So, you know, yeah. so much damage is caused to everybody by forcing you into yeah. shoehorning you into this situation that neither of you yeah. would So then there was about, uh, you know, it was about, um, I remember what happened was uh, my, my dad passed away suddenly mm. and I had to go to Italy uh, to take care of the whole lot and Max flatly refused to come with me. And I remember being on the phone and cried to him because I needed support and he just said to me, I'm now your taxi driver. Gosh. So I remember that to me was the last nail in the coffin. Mm. I remember I come back to Ireland after three weeks of being in Italy and emptying my dad's house and everything. And I was really feeling terrible. And I remember coming home and uh, being holed in the back room because I started mi- missing a few meetings because I was depressed. My dad passed away. And M- Max was away at that, that time because I was away from work. He used to go away for a whole week. And I remember the elders took me in the back room and they made the worst mistake that they got me with two elders that I didn't like too much. And back in the back room, just telling me that all my privileges were taken away beforehand because of the situation. But just just telling me that it's, I wasn't given the good example by missing meetings and blah, blah, blah. And I just remember, I just saw red. My blood went to the head and it just really saw red. And I just started looking at them. It's like, you know, I'm struggling for the last few years. You did nothing. Yeah. You know, I had to go to Italy and I'm going through a depression because my dad passed away. And you're telling me that I'm not a good example for the congregation. Well, I tell you something that you know where you can put your congregation. And I just feel like I'm, I'm changed. I'm moving. I wanted to move years ago. You told me I couldn't. I don't care. I'm moving. I'm moving congregations. And they were looking at me. And I said, like, but the people will talk. And I said, like, I don't, I don't care. People will talk. So like, I can't stand here. I just, I can't stand you. And I look at the two of them. I really don't like you. I don't like the people here. I feel this anger every single time I step my foot in this congregation. Like, this is not all right. I don't want to be in the paradise with you lot. I'd rather be destroyed. That's I was just thinking that. I, yeah. I had that exact same feeling, like I don't want to live in paradise on earth with you guys. Yeah. I totally yeah. get that. So, most congregation, I remember uh, coming out to the, uh, the Kingdom Hall and ringing Max and he'd answer because he was away and say, what's up? And I said, like, eh, well, I was holding the back room by so-and-so and uh, we are mo- I'm moving to Clamel. And his silence was like, oh. And I said, like, well, it's up to you what you want to do. But I'm moving to Clamel. And he said to me, like, well, I better move as well. 
And to be fairly honest, we moved and Clomer congregation was a much nicer, but the damage was done. And a year later, I was out the door because I couldn't, I could not kind of forgive Max. And I could not be myself. I, 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 I as to say, like I start, I wasn't awake. I woke up six months after I left. That's the thing. But I just felt, um, I start questioning things. That's the thing. I just start being more vocal with Max about things that I wasn't mm. happy. Mm. Yeah. Can I just kind of bring this back up to date then and bring the interview to a natural conclusion and I wanted to ask so I know since you've left the witnesses and since you've come out as gay it's much better that you're able to be yourself and you can be your authentically who you are but that doesn't mean that every relationship will go right after that does it I wouldn't want people to think like oh you know life is amazingly happy once you leave the witnesses because you're no. being able to it's life is a choice then isn't it and it can go one way or another or whichever way it doesn't necessarily mean so I think sometimes people think when you leave the witnesses and they want it to be like now everything's going to be perfect now because and that's not how life is really is it no no life is going to be more real yeah but it doesn't make any easier mm-hmm. um, how can I say no it doesn't make I got my heart broken twice but the last time it was the hardest time ever so mm. I am just still licking my wounds mm. and uh, I'm happily single with my dog and my mm-hmm. cats and any anybody that even mentioned anything I'm just there like ah, 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 stay away from me um I don't want to be hurt ever again but I am myself Yes. I found solace in the fact that just coming at the protest, I didn't anticipate how healing that would be. Mm-hmm. I thought it would bring up so much emotions, but it didn't. It was the opposite because you are with people that they suffer the same as you have. Yeah. You know, different ways, but you know, they totally get you. And you're having a voice now. Yeah, you're having a voice. You're doing something to protect other people. You're doing something to change Mm. the organizations. Mm. So I feel that gives me a little bit of peace. I am involved with local communities. And funny enough, I stayed in the same town that I hated when I was a witness because they make you hate the town Mm. because you're not part of the town. Yeah. But once mm-hmm. you leave, you start getting involved with the community. I'm involved with the local theatre. I'm involved with the poetry group. I love it. Amazing. Wow. And I'm part of the community. I feel I'm part of the mm. community. And I, you know, I, I treasure this town as though it's a, it's a terrible town, but mm-hmm. I treasure the people. The artists, people are mm-hmm. fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so you just, you pick up the pieces. Don't take me wrong. The last year of my life, I think it was been the worst in the whole of my life because the whole emotions mm-hmm. came up to me, was dead. Max that came to me after two and say Max is gone two and a half years why do I have to mourn him now mm. I was yeah. mourning the love of my relationships I really got hurt really really badly but life goes on and don't take me wrong I totally at my lowest I totally understood how Max must have felt when he ended his life because the cause and thought of doing that is there mm. but he did have the courage I don't have the courage to end my life because at the same time, I do still see my therapist. I have a great therapist and we always talk that, you know, today is going to be bad. Maybe tomorrow is going to be bad, but it's not going to be there forever. And you have a good days and bad days. And I always hope that the good days will outshine the bad days. 
Mm. And that's all I can say. And I'm, you know, in my good days, I'm absolutely happy when I have bad days. It's, you know what? It's, it, it is what it is. You get busy doing something else. But that's I'm right. much, much more happier and I have a hope for the future now that I didn't have when I was a witness, believe it or not, because I did not believe in Armageddon when I, when I, went to, when I was in. I always struggled with that and mm. I always felt that I was wasting my life. And now I know I'm not wasting my life. Mm. I'm actually living, although I'm struggling sometimes, but I'm living the life that I choose to live. Yeah. Rika, the way that you, your philosophy about your now freedom is really similar to how I think about life. I think about life as a wave. And I think when I'm the most up on the wave, I can only go down. Yeah. So enjoy it when I'm up. And when I'm down, I can't go down any further. Yeah, yeah, that's just totally, just so remind me. It yeah. can only go up. So I think that that really that attitude is a very positive attitude. Even though things might not be perfect, you have your freedom and therefore you can do what you want. You can manage your life as you want and we want you to do that. I've invited Susie Harris to join us and Louise, surprise, she's a Kiwi. Not an Aussie. So another Kiwi, thank goodness. <laughs> Hi. Well, I'm, a, I'm only a, a uh, honorary Kiwi because actually I'm from the UK. Oh, I could hear that in your voice. Can <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I've been here for six years. So Awesome. Um, so welcome. So that now helps me to understand why you're the proud owner of a Marmite collection. <laughs> yeah, it makes more sense now, doesn't it? <laughs> tell that tell Susie that the topic of this podcast was um challenging unconscious bias. And so what I saw about Susie is that uh she's quite vocal and we wanted that. So um, <laughs> I thought it would be awesome was for that... you to tell us about yourself, Susie. Okay, so I grew up in a very spiritual household. <laughs> Dad was an elder, mum was a pioneer, regular or auxiliary at various points. She was born in, no, yes, she was born in, um, but she was in a single single faith parent family, so only her mum was a witness when she was growing up. She pioneered and then met my dad, who was worldly at the time. They met in one of her part-time jobs, which would have been a huge no-no these days and then he embraced the religion and became an elder very quickly from what I understand and I think he sees things very black and white so I think it really he really took to the religion so I grew up from yeah my whole life being a Jehovah's Witness being one of the respected families in the community you know we were the mm. ones who would have the CO round for dinner and to stay at our house and all that kind of stuff yeah. So, yeah, immersed from very early on, yeah, we we would always be looked at as an example as a family. So, yeah, it was pretty full on. And I always oh, – I think you, of the word I need. Oh, it, it'll come to you, but let me ask you, how yeah. did you feel within yourself growing up? To be honest, I would say that I had a really happy childhood. Mm-hmm. I – completely embraced everything about the community and I think that was the big thing for me I'm a real people person and so I enjoyed going to meetings and going to this going to assemblies because I got to see people and I got to mm-hmm. hang out with my friends and the community side of it was really the biggest pull for me 
when I got into yeah. my teens, I well, actually, even when I was really little, I used to ask my mum really big questions. Like I remember I remember at nighttime I'd be in bed and it would just go around my head thinking about how can Jehovah be has always been and always will be. And that whole idea of him being like this infinite person or infinite being just blew my tiny mind. I just couldn't. Mm. And I and I would cry because I didn't get it. I didn't understand. Oh, I completely really, um, oh. can identify with that because I remember my mum telling me once that imagine the end of space. So, so you go outside the world, you get to the end of space that you know. And there's a brick yeah. wall. And then she said to me, what's behind the brick wall? It wasn't an answer to anything, but, yeah. but it was a fascinating question and it blew my mind. So I totally agree. Yeah. So that, you know, I was always a real thinker. And to be fair, my mum was, I, I think my mum did a great job growing, um, bringing us up, particularly my mum. I say that because I didn't really get on that well with my dad. And I think he, he spent most of his time working and being an elder so I attribute most of my upbringing to my mum really you know she was the one who did all the care all the yeah all the parenting really and apart from the smacking (laughs) Mm. (laughs) my dad my dad had a little notebook and if we misbehaved on the way to the meeting in the car he'd write our names down in the book and we'd get a smack when we got home so one day when we were on the way home from the meeting my brothers I used to sit in the middle of the car my two brothers we knew that I was going to get a smack when we got home I can't remember what it was for and so we came up with this plan that I would run upstairs and we'd put on as many pairs of undies as we could (laughs) so we did that I put on all of their undies all of my undies and then my, my dad hit me with the wooden spoon and I didn't feel a thing. And I just had to, like, oh, wow. and pretend. It was, I mean, looking back, it was hilarious. Oh, but wow. Obviously, it wasn't very good at yeah. the time. Anyway, that went off topic a bit. No, um, no, no, no. Go back to the underpants story. Did, did, <laughs> did, wait, did your dad not realise that you were, und- you were underpanted up? No. No way. <laughs> did you feel like Jehovah had protected you? <laughs> oh, yes. Totally. You've got to attribute all good things to Jehovah. Okay, sorry, carry on. Well, let me ask, let me ask, as you approach um, puberty, then how did you feel still growing through puberty? So I was always, um, there was always that expectation that we'd get baptised. When I got to puberty, my my middle brother had gone into sixth form which was also a big no-no um but he'd left he'd stopped going to the meetings um he hadn't ever got baptized he'd stopped going to the meetings he was in a band at school and he was doing his a-levels and i remember him saying to me don't get baptized Mm. if you ever get if you get baptized you're stuck Mm. ironically he's the only one of us that's still in (laughs) (laughs) um but because he came back when he'd finished his A-levels and got baptised later on. But, yeah, it, I, I, there was always that expectation. And I planned to leave school and pioneer. And when I was 16, we I left school. I'd got baptised, I think, when I was 15. So the year, year before I left school. And we um, moved house, moved to a different congregation. 
And the plan was always that I was going to find a part-time job. On the way to the assembly, on the bus to the assembly, one of the sisters said, oh, we've got a part-time job going in our insurance office. And so um, she arranged for me to go in and have an interview in this tiny little insurance brokers. And the guy said to me, so what days do you want to work? And I said, Tuesday and Thursday, so that I could pioneer the rest of the time. And he said, yep, sweet. Um, how much do you want? So I said, four pound an hour. And he said, yeah, OK, we'll see you next week. And that was that. So obviously Jehovah had a hand in that as well. Mm. So I was really blessed. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> So at this point, I had no no concept that I was gay at all. At school, I'd often people would often call me a lesbian as if it was mm. like some kind of insult. And I'm not really sure entirely why that was, although my brother would probably laugh and say, uh, I think you do. Mm. Because I guess I used to dress a bit more like a tomboy, always liked to have my hair short, as short as my dad would let me, because um, he'd only let me have it just below my ear. But I never actually had the con- had thought that I was gay. It just didn't cross my mind because it just mm. wasn't a thing that, you know, I guess it's that unconscious bias coming in that y- you just think, well, obviously I'm not gay because that's not a thing. You know, I even had an argument. Well, not an argument, but I in my sociology class, the sociology teacher who was clearly a lesbian said that the Bible didn't say anything about homosexuality. And I said, uh, actually, it does. And I stood up to her and and said, you know, I didn't say you're wrong and you shouldn't be a lesbian. But I did say that you were you're wrong about the fact that it's not in the Bible because it is. And looking back, I just think, God, I wish I knew where she was so I could bring her and say, sorry about that. (laughs) Sorry for being obnoxious. But yeah, so I literally didn't know. I And looking back, I think, yeah, there were definitely signs and my brother wasn't at all surprised. My oldest brother, he's also disfellowshipped. And he wasn't at all surprised when I came out and said, I could have told you that years ago. And I said, well, why didn't you? Um, but yeah, <laughs> I did have crushes. And I think when you're in a religion that tells you that being gay isn't a thing, that's, that doesn't exist, I think that you can convince yourself that you're crushes are just admiration and I admired a lot of my brother's friends (laughs) particularly and I guess you know when you're a teenager you're going through lots of confusing confusing feelings anyway but I just didn't really give it much thought I just got on with having fun and you know I was a big socializer I was one of those that got away with lots of things that I read some of the XJW forums and people just really didn't have much fun as a Jehovah's Witness I had heaps of fun Mm. (laughs) I I was one of those that used to go to the parties in London or Manchester or Birmingham or hold my host my own parties in Leicester and you'd get 200 people at the parties you know it was there was a big social scene I used to read watchtowers about you (laughs) (laughs) and we used to hear rumors of big parties in Manchester like 200 people and we'd all tut and shake his heads and I think oh my god somebody invited me (laughs) I remember going to a big one at the Trafford Centre um in a bar at the Trafford Centre yeah and there was there was one infamous party in Hull which is a infamous place in itself but I remember going to a party in Hull and after that party everybody from Leicester got in trouble for going and yeah we all got cancelled so there's a lot of stuff like that that went on 
so yeah I had lots of fun and I think we were just lucky I think you know some of the some of the congregations are so different and some congregations, their elders would clamp down on stuff like that. And other congregations, they were just like, meh, they're just having fun and didn't really see anything wrong with it. So, Susie, it sounds like um, I'm struggling to find why you left. The, I mean, I'm assuming you're an XJW. That's how I found you. <laughs> Did you leave? Well, yeah. So I actually got disfellowshipped in 2007. And I got thrown out because it actually wasn't for being a lesbian. It was for fornication. And I had actually every time I was one of those that had those huge guilt feelings. And every time I did something that I shouldn't have done or that was a little bit wrong, mostly sexually, not really anything else, I would go to the elders. So by 2007, I made my fifth trip to the back room wow uh, yeah and I overtook a guy in our congregation who was quite infamous a, a, but really sincere Jehovah's Witness and still is in who would everyone used to mock because he'd been to the back room five times and I was like oh. you bet that record <laughs> did you have your elders on speed dial <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, the time before that I'd actually I was offered a bible study because I left for a year I just fell away for a year um, and I dated a guy down in London and um, when I I just felt so guilty in that relationship because I felt like if we were going to get married and have kids that I couldn't possibly not bring my kids up in the truth so I just I said to him, look, I really love you, but I've got to go back. And if you love me, you'll follow me. So I kind of gave mm. him a bit of an ultimatum, which I feel terrible about now. Um, and we had a very teary farewell on Boxing Day in 2004, I think. So I went back and got reproved because I'd obviously been in a relationship and they knew and it was public knowledge. And then I got offered a Bible study with a sister who just didn't she wasn't my kind of person at all she was lovely I always see the good in everyone so she was really really sweet but not my kind of person at all she was really into her looks and dressing up and just stuff that I was not interested in so I had a bible study then and then I ended up going on holiday with another friend and got myself in a bit of trouble so I came back and obviously confessed because that's what you're guilted into doing and Mm. then I got disfellowshipped and at the time I was convinced, you know, I went around and said my goodbyes, told people that I was getting disfellowshipped, but that not to worry because I'll be back and I still believe it and blah, blah, blah. Actually, when I look back, I don't think I ever really believed it. I think I just want, liked the community and liked my lifestyle. But yeah, I did intend to go back. I went back to every single meeting, sat at the back and wrote a letter to my elders and the elder that I wrote the letter to didn't even acknowledge that I'd written the letter didn't even come up to me didn't send me a text message nothing and I just lost the plot really once that happened because I just thought it was so rude of him not to and arrogant really arrogant of him and I went up to him at the meeting and I said uh just want to check have you received my letter because I put it through his door Mm -hmm. And he went, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get in touch with you when we when we have time or something, something dismissive like that. And I was just so distraught. And that was kind of the start of my demise, I guess. I did carry I did move to a different congregation because I finished um, my studies and I 
got a job in a different, a slightly different town. And I did carry on going to the meetings there for a little while. But then a friend of mine started showing me the 607 stuff and I, it just completely convinced me if that if this is if that is wrong, then everything is wrong. And that mm. was my pivotal moment of realizing that actually it wasn't the truth and I didn't believe it. I think, like I say, deep down, I always knew that it wasn't the truth. I think I always knew that I didn't believe it, but I really wanted to because I felt guilty for not believing it. Mm. Well, that's um, really interesting because I didn't expect that to be the reason why you left. I really didn't. So how old were you? Yeah. yeah. How old were you then, around about? Um, oh, I was about 20, 27, 28. 27, yeah. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then I started my job and I moved to down south. And I lived and didn't really have any, well, I didn't have any contact with my family and I, but I just got to the point, I went up for my graduation to Leicester and I saw my mum, coincidentally, it was the day that my nephew was born, who my brother had already told me I wasn't going to see and that he wouldn't be getting in touch with me with any other family news after they'd told me that they were pregnant for the second time. So I thought that was really kind of him. So then when I saw my mum, she said, can you please just do it for me? As in go back for her. And so I said, I think about it. And then I decided, well, okay, I know it's not true. I've been lied to my whole life. So if I go back hypocritically and I don't actually believe it, then I'm not. I kind of talked myself into doing it and not feeling bad about lying because I'd already been lied to, if that makes sense. So I went along to a new congregation and got reinstated within with I think it was about six months in the end and going to the meetings and sitting there when you when you know it's all a pile of poo was quite revealing it was quite interesting and I don't know you because I know Louise you've been to some meetings since you became a non-believer it's amazing going back after you've got that insight that you hear the same thing over and over and over again it's always the same message every single meeting. And I, I went <laughs> religiously. I went every Sunday, every, tu- every Tuesday, I think it was. But the whole time I was going, I had absolutely zero belief in it. So I was just listening and just mind-numbingly boring. And it was just all the same. It was just so repetitive. Tedious and repetitive. And you see all oh, the crazy. you see all the mind tricks and the the sort of the hypnosis techniques and all and all the yeah. guilting, don't you? You see all the layers Absolutely. that they that they lay Absolutely. on that you did that you were falling for before and just thinking it was all the yeah. sincerity. And then you suddenly see yeah. it as just pure manipulation. Yeah. And you know, you'd you'd go to a meeting and you'd be like, Oh, this is food at the right time. And you go, yeah, because it's like horoscopes, you know, you can, it's so general that you can apply it to anything. So whatever's going on in your life, you can go, oh, it just came at the right time. (laughs) What did you do about field service, though? I mean, when you've been reinstated, you can't go out door knocking, right? So basically, my plan was that as soon as I got reinstated, I would then leave that congregation. So... 
I had planned to apply for a job in London and get a promotion. So I basically just did that, got a new job and just disappeared. So obviously the elders in that congregation had no real investment in me because they didn't really know know me from you know, they, they weren't the ones that disfellowshipped me. They weren't the ones that counselled me as a kid. So they didn't really have that much interest. So they didn't ch- they didn't even chase me. I don't, I don't even remember getting any messages, text messages from any of them. I think they probably assumed that I'd gone home to Leicester. Now that I was reacquainted with my family. And in Leicester, they had no, obviously no idea where I was. So they just assumed that I was in Hartford. So I kind of slipped between the two different congregations. My I told... Well, the first time I went up to see my parents, I told my mum that I'd done it for her, but I still didn't believe it. And she said, oh, I thought that maybe doing it for me, you'd then you'd it'd then reach your heart and you'd believe it again. I said, yeah, I understand that. But no, that didn't happen. And then we just agreed that we wouldn't tell my dad because he's, like I say, very black and white and probably would want to cut ties again my brother when he the brother that's still in when he found out that I was still speaking to my other brother who by this time had been disfellowshipped he wasn't very impressed and said that he would have to rethink how much contacts him and his kids had with me so I just reassured him that I wasn't gonna say anything to manipulate his children that I would always support him and his wife and their beliefs I wouldn't I wouldn't tell the kids that God didn't exist or blah 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 you know so how long did you live like this, Susie? How many uh-huh. years did this go on? So from the age of, say, 27, when you left, and then this kind of life so, game that you're playing, how long did this yeah. go on for? So that was probably 2009. And then I went travelling when I was 30 because I had always wanted to go travelling, but obviously that's not really approved of so I went traveling and then ended up in New Zealand and then four years after that so when I was 30 31-ish 32 I finally realized that I was gay so how did that happen that realization <laughs> I'd been dating quite a lot in London and over here when I arrived and I always met these guys that were really, really nice and there was nothing particularly wrong with them. I just didn't ever click with them. And I just thought, something's not right. Like, why don't, why do I always go on sort of two or three dates and then that's it? So, and I was hanging out with a couple of gay guys and I just ended up going out with them to some gay venues and thought, Actually, I'm going to start exploring this side of me because I've always shut it down. And the first time I hooked up with a woman, I just realized, yeah, this is this is what I'm supposed to do. It was right, just... so the shutting it down. The shutting it down is what I'd like to hear more of, because yeah. you never mentioned in that previous decade that you were shutting anything down. Because I guess in my mind, I wasn't it. It just, it didn't even come as a thought in my head. I just assumed that I liked boys. Yeah. Always assumed that I liked guys. It never became an issue for me. And I think So it had been suppressed and so subconsciously suppressed that you had no idea. And then suddenly an epiphany bell rings. Yeah. And I don't, I don't really know what it was that, 
that rang that bell. It, it was literally mm. just, I've been on so many dates. I've had lots of experience with guys. Nothing ever sticks for more than two or three dates. There must be something different that I can try. Mm. And it genuinely was that. It was like, let's see if I can explore this other side. And it was as simple as that, because like I say, when I went out and had my experience with a woman, it was like nothing I'd felt before. Even mm. though I wasn't particularly in love with that person, it just felt so different. And the excitement that I felt from the experience was like nothing I'd ever felt before. I'm trying not to be too graphic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, can I tell you, Susie, I was in a club about a decade ago in another state and I had had some new friends because I tried to work um, in Queensland and, and I thought this was the new life for me, being in Queensland. Mm. But none of my friends and family were there, so I, I um, ended up coming back even though I barely got any family, but I ended up coming back. But while I was up there, I was up there for six months, and um, there was an experience that somebody else had, which was an experience like yours, where they were curious and said they wanted to experiment. And the end result was that she realized that she was straight. But in your case, the end result was the right thing for you. Yeah. You found the right thing. So yeah. I do understand. Interestingly, yeah. interestingly, I had kissed a girl before. One of those was an ex-Jehovah's Witness that I was friends with when I was out, when I'd left. And we were out in a club and ended up kissing. And she'd had a couple of experiences with, or at least one experience with somebody else that is straight. And the other experience that I had was actually with another Jehovah's Witness girl who was a Jehovah's Witness at the time is still a Jehovah's Witness and when I brought it up a few years later she completely denied that we'd ever made out and it was quite interesting she's still as far as I know she's not married still and I just think that's actually quite sad if she you know if that's the reason why she's not married and interestingly mm. even though I'd had those experiences I still didn't think oh maybe I'm gay it was just like, oh, I can wow. Okay. It's, that's how suppressed I was about yeah. the whole of my sexuality because it just wasn't something that I even considered might be a possibility. And so when Katy Perry's song came out, did you realise then? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Katy Perry, I Kissed a Girl? Yeah, when was that? What year? I don't oh, know. that was probably nearly 10 years ago. Yeah, no. Did, did I think you suddenly I just... go, this was my song? <laughs> like, ah. Oh. No, I've since since claimed it, but no, not at the time. That's yeah. good because we've already got a song for the end of this podcast, so what a relief that that's, that's right. not your song. What a shame. <laughs> yeah. I, was a bit, yeah. I was a bit sad that Missy Higgins had already been used because I do like Missy Higgins. <laughs> yeah, she's awesome. Did your um, change in direction result in a new round of shunning for you from your family? Sure did. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure did. So... Um, I decided that, you know, I'd heard lots of stories about people who come out and then don't say anything to their families and just keep secrets. I remember visiting my cousin who isn't a Jehovah's Witness, did grow up as a witness for the first 15 years and then the whole family left. And he lives in Brighton and he had a friend who was gay, who was gay. And, and he, I remember him telling me, this is like 
maybe eight years ago, so before I came out. And he was telling me about the fact that his he and his partner lived in a house, but they had separate rooms so that whenever his family came round, they would say, oh, no, this is my room and that's his room. But actually, they were a couple. And I just thought, I can't live like that. I can't. I, I spoke to my mum at that point on Skype probably every couple of weeks, and I texted her quite a bit. And even though I was obviously not, telling her everything about my life I would tell her if I met someone or if I went on a date and she would hear that even though she knew that it was a worldly person she would hear it and I thought I can't continue to have conversations with her every couple of weeks and just be living a lie I'd always been really close to my mum we'd had a really good relationship she's got a wicked sense of humour and I just couldn't, I just couldn't have that, live that double life. So as soon as I was sure, which was within like a couple of months, I decided that I'd write them a letter. And I did that because I didn't want to have a face-to-face conversation where I would um and ah, get my words muddled, see their reaction, mm. get emotional, all that kind of jazz. So I wrote everything down in a letter I thanked them for being awesome parents. I thanked them for giving us the opportunities that they did. And, you know, in some ways, I can see some of the benefits of growing up in a community, the public speaking, mm. working on my volume and pausing. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to take issue with you on that, Susie, but carry on with the story. I think that is the most feeble excuse for people when they're trying to find it. Oh, let's find something good about being. It's like, let's find something good about living under Saddam Hussein. Well, not everybody got killed in acid baths. Some of us learnt to run really fast. <laughs> Sorry. Not only that, but Susie calls it the truth. No, I don't. No, 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 no. I don't. I don't. Yeah. I was, I, I You're was just joking. Yeah, yeah. I was only referring it to the truth because that's how they do. But yeah, no, I definitely, I'm not James. I definitely don't. It's not the truth. And so I thanked them for all the things they'd done. I said that I still love them, that I'm still me, but this is who I am. And they just sent me a letter back that was really cold and said that they wouldn't be able to have any more to do with me. Um, Sorry, and when I've well, when I've seen letters that other people have got, it's quite interesting how alike all the letters are. That it's all the same rhetoric, it's all the same mm. kind of words, and you just realise how oh, how yeah how brainwashed it all is. Like you know, I I kind of at the time didn't realize that I just thought oh yeah my dad's written that it's quite cold and emotionless and not that he's cold but he you know he's very black and white as I said and it didn't even say in there we love you but Mm. it was so unemotional and I sent them another letter a little while later because I was going back to the UK and I said, look, I'm coming back to the UK. I'm probably not going to be there again for another few years if you want to have a face to face discussion. So that I'd given them the opportunity to read the letter and then have a discussion on Skype, which they refused to do. So then, like I said, a few years later, I sent them another letter and they basically sent me a reply saying that they we were at an impasse because neither of us was going to. Mm give up on our argument and there was nowhere to go said that they wouldn't meet up with me in that letter they did say that they loved me but they couldn't they couldn't align their faith and their values with what I was doing 
and they couldn't condone it. By coincidence, me and my brother were in, were in Leicester and we were in a cafe and my mum walked by. And so I sent her a text message and I told her where we were and she came back and saw us. So we had a little conversation. She didn't really ask me any questions, any personal questions, because I guess she didn't want to know. She was too worried about what I might say, like if I was in a relationship or anything. And my brother, she did ask a few more personal questions because I guess it wouldn't have been as scary for her or as confronting. And I feel, you know, I do feel like they're suffering as well. But I also feel like they're getting kudos from the congregation for shunning us. And that kind of buoys them along. Susie, did you watch that TV show Bride and Prejudice? Did you get that in New Zealand? I saw, no, I did see a couple of the clips, though. Yeah, because there was a guy by the name of Chris who was um, mm. a Jehovah's, came from a Jehovah's Witness family, and you could see with what vigour uh, his mother defended mm. her choice not to attend his couldn't condone him. And yeah. people often say that they have free choice, but when you see everybody responding in the same way that they're yeah. told to, Absolutely. It's really not free a choice, is it? No. No. So I because imagine you know, went through a similar experience that Chris did. I was going to say that they know that if they make that choice that they'll be shunned as well, you know, and it, it saddens me that they see that as more important than their child. You know, I kind of mm. – I've thought about it a lot and thought, well, if I, was, if I was a believer and if I was still a Jehovah's Witness and my child came out as gay, would I shun them? And I know it's hard to say once you don't believe it, but I think, wouldn't you choose your child, even if it meant you were going to die? You know, where's that where's that love of your children and that that instinct to protect them at all costs? Yeah, exactly. And I used to think like when I had Chloe, um, I used to think if Chloe died, what would be the point of living for me? I would not want to live mm. without my children. Yeah. So how? It seems really utterly selfish to to crave a paradise earth without your kids. Like, oh, screw you, you're doomed, but I still want to live in paradise forever. It just seems mm. awful, horrible. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite phenomenal. So, Susie, so, you've yeah. got a photo on your Facebook profile, which I stealthily took a look at, <laughs> and my favourite one has got you in a rainforest, by the looks of it, holding a sign. Yeah. Where were you and why did you write that on the – what did you write and why did you do that? So I wrote Freedom is My Paradise and I went for a walk in Titarangi, which is out in the west of Auckland, because I thought, you know, this is where I'm happy when I'm out in the bush walking and enjoying nature. It's not the only place I'm happy. I'm happy in lots of places. But I wrote that because a lot of there was a movement where a lot of Jehovah's, a lot of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses were writing "Freedom is My Paradise" and showing how, when you're out and you're not under that control, you can be yourself, you can be free. And I was having a chat with a friend of mine just this morning, actually, because I told her that I was going to be doing this, and she that was the big thing that she mentioned that to be when she left, she also believed that it was the truth. But she knew that she couldn't live under the oppression anymore. And whilst I didn't, I wasn't quite aware that I was under such oppression, 
I certainly felt the release when I left of being able to be my true self and being able to be free and make my own choices. And I think there was definitely a grieving process with leaving because, Mm. you know, I I talked about it in quite a glib way, I guess, realising that it wasn't the truth when I found out that 607, the 607 stuff. But you realise that actually you haven't got a hope for the future and that what you thought life was all about is was wrong. So then you have to kind of reassess, well, where am I at? What am I doing? What is life about for me? And like I said, for me, I went travelling and I met lots of people through travelling. I was lucky because when I left the religion for that little time, when I was dating that guy, I ended up enrolling in college did my A-levels and then went to uni and became a speech therapist. So, yeah, so I'd got friends from uni that, um, so I'd already, you know, I had established a friendship group outside of the J-dubs, which actually made things a lot easier for me. But then you didn't have that history with people that you had with the people that you'd known since childhood. And not having the family there as well, you kind of had that sense of loss and it was definitely a grieving process. But I think, you know, if, if I could give anybody any advice, I would say, find your tribe, go out there and Mm. find the people that you connect with and don't try and minimize the loss, accept the loss, but move on from it and find what it is that you enjoy. I was really lucky because when I left and I realized it was all wrong or all false I went to my doctors and I got my six free counselling sessions that you're given by the NHS. But I was super lucky because the guy that I went to, his brother-in-law was disfellowshipped. And so I didn't have to explain, you know, I could have taken that whole six sessions explaining to him the, the ins and outs and what it all meant being disfellowshipped. I didn't have to do any of that. So we could go straight into talking about the guilt And that was the biggest thing that we addressed was the guilt of not believing and having that support and having somebody to listen to me made a huge difference to me moving on. So I would say try and find a good counsellor. And I know that is really hard, particularly when you're using NHS or free sessions. It's not always easy to find the right person, but that was probably the biggest thing that helped me to then move on and go and do things that I actually enjoy doing. Yeah, I think I agree with that, Susie, because I found a counsellor after a relationship breakup and I didn't Mm. know that the XJW stuff in the background was causing issues. And she didn't refer refer to that, but she just gave me a plan or she helped me to create my own plan. And I Mm. did then go searching for my tribe, if you like, and like you, I'm an outdoors person and we're trying to get Louise to come to our tribe, but <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see. She's training up for it right now. Awesome. I want to I ask another question about yeah. your wife because you're married and I heard mm-hmm. that you're getting a massage today for your wedding anniversary. Can you tell <laughs> us about how you met your wife and how it was that you came to be married? Because we know that we legally are allowed to be married in Australia. Were you married Finally. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, finally, exactly. So tell us about that. Well, me and my wife, we had a very romantic story of meeting on Tinder for a hookup. (laughs) Classic. Which is just beautiful. It's just beautiful. 
yeah so literally we met on tinder and we just clicked she actually lived in hamilton which is about an hour and a half away from auckland so we're long distance for a little while but we did the whole lesbian u-haul thing which you probably don't know what that means um, no, I don't. <laughs> so there's a bit of a joke in the lesbian community about how quickly lesbians move in a relationship. So, you know, in America, they have the U-Haul vans where you go and hire a van and you just move your whole house. So lesbians U-Haul, they move in together very quickly. And that's that's what we did. So in lesbian years, we've been together for about 10. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in dog years seven, in real years three. <laughs> so yeah, we we I think you know it's really important that she understands where I've come from as well, because mm. you know I think growing up as Jehovah's, I mean, t- telling her my story, she just couldn't, and actually anybody that I tell, they can't believe it because they don't. Well, the world doesn't see Jehovah's Witnesses as a cult. They don't see them as mm. they don't even realize they're a high control religion. So telling your story does shock people. Mm. But she's been really supportive and understands that, you know, there are times where I really miss my mum. And, you know, we'll be sitting watching something. We were watching a movie the other week and I by the end of it was sobbing because it just mm. it reminded me of my mum it reminded me of the missed opportunities for a relationship of the kind of situations that I'm going to miss out on over the next few years I think oh it was <laughs> it was the Christmas movie with um Diane Keaton in it where she dies I can't remember and it was just oh, I it, didn't see that one I can't remember what it's I know what you mean you can you can me be reminded mom, at any time yeah like me and my mum used to love Diane Keaton. We just we we used to watch Father of the Bride too and just pee ourselves laughing at it. And so I think it was that combination of the the movie, the character, the actress, and then thinking about my mum. So yeah, Amy's been really supportive and helped me through. And you know, I mean, I've I've kind of got to that point where I'd already healed by the time I met her. Anyway, I'd been out for. I think two years. Oh, Amy's just messaged me. The, it was the Family Stone is the movie. So spoiler, <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> She's listening in the it. next room. She dies. <laughs> she is, yeah. <laughs> um, um, so, so tell me because you you mentioned that you didn't want to be hypocritical earlier on. You said that yeah. was really challenging to be hypocritical, and I felt the same. And then you said that you you know you tried to explain it to some people in the world so that they can understand. Now you were telling me that your sister in law had a year thirteen drama class. Can you yes. explain that story? Yeah, so she, so she decided, I think she, when she met my brother, she found the story so interesting about our parents and she, it just, the whole situation just blew her mind. And so she, they were doing a verbatim theatre activity where you basically hear what's, hear what somebody's got to say about a situation and then you act it out as them and you say what they said in the interview. So that's what she decided to do with her class. So she interviewed myself, my brother, and I think somebody, I think, I think it might have been Terry. I'm not entirely sure, but I know she definitely um, interviewed someone who's, who was an XJ-dub and an activist. I'm pretty sure it was Terry O'Sullivan. And 
so I read through my transcript just before I did this podcast just to kind of refresh on what I'd said in that um, and they're basically going to they're learning about what it all means and the high control and they're going to do some performances on it for their A-level um, A-level drama wow brilliant it would be Terry because she's in Leicester ah yeah 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 and they're I mean they these kids are just like what the hell am I listening to like you know when you're talking about your experience in the religion because most of them are from atheist backgrounds and so they've not had any experience of religion let alone high control religion and they it's just blown their minds to be honest they're just really shocked at all the stories that we've been telling them it's been quite uh, they've not done their performances yet um I don't think um so I'm quite interested to to see how that all pans out and what what their performances are like oh I thought it already happened so I'm interested to see as well are they going to record it or hear about it anyway are they going to record it so I think so yeah, I think so. Wow, that would I'm be great. That would sure. be really interesting. But yeah, yeah. I'll definitely find out. Cool. And to to hear yeah. their reactions, it would be good. It would be good to know what they say. Yeah. I've got one final question, and Go and I have it. to preface the question with something that Kale sent me after we interviewed him, and mm. he said I forgot to mention tonight. Oh, this is the night that we recorded. Oh. Yeah. He, so Kale forgot to mention how he used to fool around with an elder's son, because you mentioned earlier that. Um, <laughs> had gotten with some XJWs um, previously that you kind of forgot that. So he forgot that as well. But the main thing that he said was for years, whenever he slept with a guy, he'd come home and throw up because of the indoctrination that had been drilled into his subconscious. Did you ever have feelings like that? It is sad. Did you ever feel that way or because you'd already left... You kind of resolved I, it in your mind? Yeah, I'd, I'd resolved it. I think, you know, I had a lot of guilt in the first few years, but I'd already dealt with my guilt and I'd already realised that I shouldn't be guilty. And I think I'd worked, worked out the indoctrination by the time I actually came out. I think I definitely... So, you know, earlier I was saying that I was going to pioneer... I actually didn't end up pioneering because when I was 16, I was in this new congregation and I went round to someone's house, elder's daughter, and got horrendously drunk. So all the girls that were there were older than me. One of them was 25. Um, all of them were over 18. And they let me drink, gave me drink. I threw up and... They went and told the elders. So I wasn't allowed to pioneer. And I sobbed for two days in my bedroom. And when I got in trouble and had my judicial committees later on, I would always be absolutely devastated. Devastated that I'd, you know, I'd let my parents down. Devastated that I'd missed the mark again. Mm. But by the time I actually came out as gay, I didn't feel those things because I'd already gone through them every time I'd made any other mistake. And then I'd dealt with that guilt when I'd left the religion. Yeah. And and so 
I'm really happy to hear that you're in a great place and I'm really happy to hear that you've obviously intellectually resolved everything in your head by the sound mm. of it. Now, Louise, if it's okay with you, I'd like to introduce you introduce a song that mm-hmm. encapsulates you that I talked about with Louise yesterday and yes. she let me choose this song. So talk amongst yourselves. If there's anything else you want to cover, let me know, but I'd like to take about this. We'll just mingle over here, Ike. <laughs> Lara lines up the, um, the, the closing song for this meeting. Sister Sister Caput, what is the closing song for the meeting, please? <laughs> Sorry. No. Oh, gosh. Okay. So kind of a bit scared to tell Riker this now from okay. what she said early on because because she's, she's not interested in Britney Spears. And it's not Britney Spears. Oh, no, 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 no. I love Britney Spears. I love Britney Spears. I was just... No, nice. it's, was oh, no, it's not. I don't like Britney Spears. Oh, God, give me Britney Spears anytime. <laughs> No, so um, it's actually an Italian artist, and I hope you know him. His name is Eros Ramazzotti. Yes, I know him, yeah. You know him, and he's adorable, but only for me, not for you. (laughs) (laughs) But I had to choose a song that he sang in English. He, he sings this in Italian, but he sings this song in English, and he sings this song with my equivalent of Britney Spears, and that is Ricky Martin. Ah. So I'm sure you haven't heard of this one, but now you're going to hear it. So, <laughs> so um, this is for the both of you, and it, the song is Non Siamo Soli, which means in English, Riker? Yeah. What does, does it mean in English? We are not We are not alone. alone. Exactly. (laughs) So we're going to play the Italian version, but you can also find the English version. And it encapsulates the both of you because when we were talking um, nearly six months ago now, Mm -hmm. preparing for this podcast tonight, we were talking to a person that you haven't met from New Zealand and she had, uh, she's just gotten married actually. And I think she was about to go on her honeymoon and that's Susie. So I hope when you listen back to this podcast, you'll hear Susie's story and Susie will hear your story. And this is for the both of you because Susie found someone and you're yet to find someone. And I think that will come in good time. You're young. You've got to wait till you're my age to find the right one. (laughs) Well, you know something, I'm not that young. I'm 42. But the thing is that uh, the two favourite people in my life are already taken because you're taken (laughs) and Louise is taken. (laughs) We're too old for you. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You need to go young, Michael. I hope you enjoy this song. Thank you. And thank you so much for sharing so much of your extremely personal story with us. That's really brave of you. And we. a hybrid of an accent wasn't too much of an issue. No, we love it. Love your accent. It's beautiful. And we'll um, edit Susie in to the podcast and then I will say thank you to everybody for listening to JW Community Podcast. Goodbye. che mi fa sentire ancora vivo e cercherò tutti quelli come me che hanno ancora un sogno